Hello, this is Patrick Ridgely with Transamerica, and welcome to another edition of Market Pulse with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wall. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Patrick. Nice to be back. Now, Tom, we are two months into the year, and you've just written a new piece that's called Here is What's Different So Far in 2023, which sounds quite, sounds quite intriguing, if I may <laughs> say so. Yeah. <laughs> and and in this article, you take a look at what, what you refer to as a changing market environment since the end of last year. So I guess the first question I'm going to ask you today is, what's changed? Uh, yeah, yes, I think during these first two months of the year, there has definitely been somewhat of a changing market landscape that has affected uh, investor sentiment and psychology. And I would probably break that down into a few areas where, in my view, expectations have been adjusted to some extent. And and those would include recession risk, inflation, and the future path of interest rates. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, how uh, those spill over into the stock and bond markets. Okay, so let's start with the U.S. economy and recession risk. What do you see as different now versus where we were when the year began? Well, Patrick, I think probably the biggest difference, again, from my perspective, is that a recession in the year ahead does not appear to be the foregone conclusion most people thought it was a few months ago. Now, now to be clear, I, I still believe we are more likely to see a recession begin this year than not. But I would say it is not as much of a slam dunk as market consensus sort of proclaimed it to be back in early January. Yeah. Along those lines, Tom, I believe in your your 2023 market outlook, you attributed an 80% probability of a recession in calendar year 2023, uh, broken down by 60% probability of a moderate recession, 20% severe recession, and 20% soft landing or, or no recession at all. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. And I would probably adjust that modestly now. I would maybe go with more of a 60% overall probability of recession beginning this year. And within that, about a 50% chance of a moderate recession, perhaps similar to the downturns that began in 1990 and 2001, lasting less than a year with peak to trough GDP declines of about 1% and only about a 10% chance of a prolonged and severe recession along the lines of those that began back in 1981 and 2007, lasting more than a year and with peak to trough GDP declines in the 3 to 5% range. And I would say we now have a higher but still below even probability of a soft landing, or in other words, avoiding a recession altogether at about 40%. Okay, so you're giving the soft landing, no recession scenario, more of a fighting chance? Why is that? Well, Patrick, the economic data so far this year has been coming in stronger than than expected, and in particular, pretending to strengthen the labor market, Uh, beginning with the January employment report in which more than 500,000 new jobs were added to the economy. uh, This was the highest monthly increase since last July, twice the number of new jobs from December, and more than two and a half times consensus expectations and unemployment for January was at 3.4%, a 53-year low. So sort of rule number one is you can't have a recession when the labor market is this hot. Not that employment trends can't reverse quickly, but that's not what we're seeing right now. And a few other important developments, uh, consumer spending, which accounts for about two-thirds of cumulative GDP growth is still solid. January retail sales came in at an annualized rate of 3% versus expectations of 2%. And perhaps the most interesting data point right now is that the Atlanta Fed 
as of the end of February, uh, was tracking first quarter GDP growth at 2.8% annualized. So these are all very much non-recessionary numbers, Patrick. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. But so so why, given those data points you just mentioned, why do you think there's still a better than even chance we'll go into a recession this year? Uh, yes, very good question. And the reason is uh, those data points I just mentioned are, for the most part, coincident or lagging economic indicators. When you look at leading indicators, uh, those with a past history of turning downward prior to recessions, some might even call them forecasters of recessions, they are telling a very different story. And what would some of those be? Uh, I would point to three of them. The first would be the conference board's leading economic index. The conference board is a nonprofit economic research group that calculates and publishes an index of 10 leading economic market and consumer data points on a monthly basis, such as manufacturing orders, manufacturing hours worked, consumer credit and consumer sentiment, housing permits, jobless claims, and the slope of the Treasury bond yield curve. These are believed to be the types of data points that turn negative prior to recession. And this index of leading indicators through January is down about 5% over the past year. And simply put, since 1981, it has never been down that amount without the economy entering a recession within about a year's time. Hmm. The second would be that since last October, the Treasury bond yield curve has been inverted, meaning short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. In fact, in late January, the differential between the three-month Treasury yield and the 10-year Treasury yield reached about 125 basis points or 1.25%, representing its widest margin in more than 40 years, and on a percentage of yield basis, its widest margin ever. Now, Patrick, inverted yield curves have, for the most part, been very accurate indicators of future recessions based on the bond market's ability to identify recessions on the horizon creating a disproportionate demand for long-term bonds versus short-term bonds in anticipation of falling interest rates out in the future necessary to revive economic growth. But more importantly, Patrick, inverted yield curves are pretty much anomalous events. And from a recession forecasting standpoint, the last time a three-month to 10-year inverted yield curve was not followed by a recession within 82 months was back in 1966. Since then, uh, they've batted eight for eight as a recession precursor. And finally, I would have to also include that the 450 basis points or 4.5% of rate hikes by the Fed since this time last year and the imminent rate increases likely to follow in the months ahead will also probably have a forward effect as well. So even with the stronger economic data we've seen in the past couple of months, there's still a pretty strong case for a recession beginning later this year, in your judgment? Uh, yes, that's right. But Patrick, here is what I believe is the real story behind some of these cross signals, if you will, and the battle between uh, leading and lagging slash coincident indicators. A lot of these leading indicators I just mentioned have a strong correlating factor in, quote unquote, forecasting the timing of recessions, but not necessarily in forecasting the severity of recessions. So back to that strong data we mentioned a moment ago, uh, the jobs numbers, consumer spending, and where first quarter GDP is tracking right now. 
I think the biggest change in all of this is that it has shifted the bull versus bear debate from whether we are going to have a severe recession or moderate recession to one of whether we are going to have a moderate recession or no recession. Hmm. And that's a big change in the conversation and, and the perceived risk profile of the economy, in my opinion. So, hmm. Patrick, one thing I've sort of learned over the years is that when the range of outcomes in the bull versus bear debate moves to a less ominous or more favorable range of outcomes, that typically is something investors want to recognize. Now, now Tom, there has also been a not so great market reaction to all of this. And sometimes, and a lot of people seem to believe we're in one of those times right now, <laughs> sometimes good economic news is not always interpreted as good market news. Is that correct? Uh, that That's right. It's the quote unquote, Good news is bad news argument, as in stronger economic news means higher risk of continuing inflation and higher interest rates. Uh, now, I usually don't subscribe to that, and definitely not in this case. While this better economic news has created some short-term volatility in the markets, I tend to believe that over the long term, good news is good news, and that less overall economic risk should prove more favorable for the equity and credit markets as the year progresses. Okay, that makes sense. Now, Tom, we can't go too far down the economic track without talking about inflation, which remains mm -hmm. a major story this year mm -hmm. and still a huge variable for the markets to deal with. Uh, yes, absolutely, Patrick. And I think what has changed in that regard so far this year is we have moved from a focus on rising inflation to a focus on the stubbornness of inflation, so to speak. Pretty much every month between the beginning of 2021 and last summer, we were looking at rising year-over-year -year inflation numbers, which reached 9.1% on the consumer price index last June. But then we started seeing a pretty consistent decline by the end of the year, and that downward trajectory was fairly encouraging. Uh, that 9.1% uh, headline CPI number gradually month by month fell to 6.5% in December, and the core ex-food and energy CPI reading dropped from 6.6% in September to 5.7% in December. Then in January, uh, not much changed as the reports came in hotter than expected with headline CPI at 6.4% and core at 5.6%. Then for the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation metric, personal consumption expenditures, PCE, that measure peaked with year-over-year -year headline and core readings of 7% and 5.4% last year before finishing December at 53 and 4.6%. Very nice progress in my judgment. But then in January, those PC numbers actually upticked to 5.4% and 4.7%. So after a very noticeable decline off of last year's peaks, we now could be seeing some interim plateauing or what I like to refer to as that stubbornness factor. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, I also should emphasize, Patrick, this new data is just one month and investors should never read too much into just one uh, month of data, but it is across the inflation spectrum. So it's uh, certainly been an, uh, an attention grabber. So the longer term inflationary trend since last summer, if you can call since last summer a longer term trend, yeah. <laughs> it is still favorable, but we are starting to see more bumps in the road. How should investors process this? Uh, well, I think the first point to recognize would be that declining rates of inflation 
following cycle peaks, like what we saw last June, are rarely linear in nature. And, and like the markets themselves, will stagnate or oscillate within a broader trend. That was pretty much what we saw back in the time frame of 1980 through 1982, when inflation declined from over 14% to 4% during 1990-91, when inflation fell from 6% to 3%. So bigger picture, we continue to think core rates of inflation stand a good chance to moderate throughout 2023. And while Month of reports could continue to waver. We still believe there's a strong probability both CPI and PCE core rates converge to 4% or lower uh, during the second half of the year. And of course, this spills directly into the interest rate environment where you also see a changing landscape. Yes. And not so much from what we believe, but from what the market now believes, which is where, in our view, that landscape has shifted. You might recall, Patrick, when the year started in our 2023 market outlook, we expressed a year-end target on the Fed funds rate of 5%. However, the market, as defined by Fed funds futures trading, was back then in a far different place. Back then, just two months ago, consensus market expectations were for another one or two rate hikes by the Fed in the spring, and then a pivot to rate cuts in the second half of the year, taking the Fed funds rate down to 4.5% by year end. Patrick, right. this was a notion we never ascribed to. Okay. We were pretty vocal that any rate cuts in 2023 were highly unlikely. So fast forward a couple months, and when now taking into account both the stronger economic data we have seen of late and the hotter than expected inflation numbers during January, market expectations have changed considerably. Fed funds futures trading is now reflecting about three rate hikes for the year and pretty much no pivot in the second half of the year. No rate cuts in 2023. So while we had always agreed with that, it is a new perspective in terms of market expectation sentiment. Mm -hmm. And Patrick, I should also mention that we now expect the Fed funds rate to reach five and a quarter percent in the months ahead as the Fed will probably implement three more uh, quarter point rate hikes at the March May and June meetings. Okay. Now, Tom, in your article, and as related to your earlier comments, you also make an interesting point that bond investors should, and I'm going to read this here, heed the risk of the currently inverted yield curve and the potential future upward path of longer term rates. You care to elaborate on this a bit? Yes. Now, since January, we've seen a pretty sizable move up in longer term rates as the 10-year Treasury yield has increased from less than 3.4% in mid-January to close to 4% by the end of February. And I believe much of this has to do with that inverted yield curve I was mentioning a few minutes ago. Simply put, Patrick, if there is a perceived inversion spread between short-term interest rates and long-term rates, and short-term rates continue rising as pretty much everyone expects, then long-term rates are likely prone to move up in lockstep and with higher price sensitivity to those rising rates, that is not a great scenario for long-term bonds. But Patrick, there's more to it than just that. Historically speaking, yield curves don't stay inverted very long as they typically initially become inverted going into recessions and ultimately resume upward slopes as recessions play out and economic growth recovers. That has been the case for every recession since 1969. 
So there are three ways a yield curve changes from inverted to upward sloping. Short-term rates come down, long-term rates go up, or some combination of the two. But if we pretty much know right now that there is a very high probability that short-term rates continue to rise because of current inflation and stronger economic data, that leaves the only remaining math for an eventually upward sloping yield curve to be rising long-term rates, okay. which equates to more price risk for long-term bond investors. And along those lines, Patrick, we now believe there is a potential upside for long-term bond yields to at least 4.25% in the months ahead uh, versus our 4% target when the year began. That's a fascinating perspective, Tom. It and this has all been some really great information and perspectives on what's been going on since the year began. And so I was wondering if you could maybe close out with with your broader views of what investors most need to know right now about the overall stock and bond markets. Yes. For stocks, I would say the next few months are likely to remain volatile. However, in our judgment, the equity markets could be well positioned for the second half of the year and in the next year. Uh, while we do believe corporate earnings estimates for calendar year 2023 will continue to decline and likely turn negative versus calendar year 2022, this has been widely expected for some time and, in our view, played a major role in the precipitous stock declines over the past year. Should we see S&P 500 net operating income for 2023 come in no worse than approximately 10% or lower than 2022, that could actually prove to be favorable for stocks as the market begins to focus on 2024 profits. Uh, we would also cite the strong historical market returns in years following both peak rates of inflation and conclusions of Fed tightening cycles, the former of which uh, we believe to now be in effect and the latter of which is likely to occur later this year. Therefore, while volatility will likely continue in the months ahead, we are maintaining our year-end 2023 S&P 500 price target of 4400 And for bonds? Yes. For the fixed income markets, we believe strong opportunities continue to exist in short and intermediate-term corporate bonds. High-yield bonds are now offering close to their highest income levels since 2020, and investment-grade bonds close to their highest yields since 2009. We would also view overall credit risk in the corporate markets as more benign than prior to previous recessions, in large part due to opportunistic refinancings that took place during the pandemic and aggregate maturity schedules in the corporate markets more heavily weighted toward the latter parts of the decade. So own them both, stocks and bonds? Yes, I would say that in extrapolating the words of Mark Twain, reports of the 60-40 balanced portfolio's demise have been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> and given the current yields on short and intermediate term bonds and the longer term opportunities for stocks, as the inflationary and interest rate environments ultimately reconcile, we believe both credit-oriented, fixed income, and equity investors have a lot more working for them right now than against them. That's well said, Tom. And I suppose quoting Mark Twain is as good a spot to conclude today's discussion as any. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> now, we do have a much anticipated Fed meeting coming up in a few weeks, which will likely have some bearing, uh, if not more than some bearing, on much of what we've talked about just now. So we can look to have you back at that time? Yes, Patrick, count on it. Good deal, sounds like a plan. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Patrick. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. 
Past performance does not guarantee future results. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. Economies and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. Economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. 274-4842